Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. Last week, Donald Trump declared April National Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month. Yes, this is the same man who gained international notoriety after bragging about wrapping his tiny little hands around random women's vaginas. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. And I'm allowed to go in because I'm the owner of the pageant, and therefore I'm inspecting it. You know, I'm inspecting. Right, I want right. to make sure that like everything is good. You're, you're there. Yeah, the dress is, is everyone okay? You know, they're <laughs> yeah. standing there with no clothes. Is everybody okay? And you see these incredible-looking women. It must be a right. pretty picture you drop in. I can imagine Donald Trump putting this all into, like, a nursery rhyme for children and, and making kids repeat this at school. I don't know who had the idea that it was, like, if people haven't forgotten the pussy grabbing thing already, let's remind them by making April Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Like he went, he went out of his way to remind people. He went it out was of his way. A serious troll. He re- issued a proclamation, essentially reminding people. Also, in an interview with the New York Times that came out on Wednesday, he defended Bill O'Reilly who just settled with five women who said that he sexually harassed them and treated them inappropriately at Fox News. And Donald Trump said, I think he's a person I know well. He is a good person. I think he shouldn't have settled. Personally, I think he shouldn't have settled because you should have taken it all the way. I don't think Bill did anything wrong. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's not unbelievable. It's very believable, actually. Also, the idea, this this is something that always has always bothered me, but when men react to complaints of sexual harassment or sexism as like, oh, well, I didn't see it. Oh, well, that person treats me well. It's like, yeah, no shit. You're yeah. a dude. <laughs> of course. That's yeah. what it means. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Bill O'Reilly is not going to sexually harass Donald Trump. That is not a thing that would happen. Exactly. Later in the episode, we'll be talking about a new Trump-signed measure that allows internet service providers to sell your browsing data to advertisers with Stephen Renderos, organizing director of the Center for Media Justice. You know, what Congress did was extremely harmful and uh, affects everyone in the United States who uses the internet. But first, our week in weenies. All right. I am proud to welcome Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, into our tight circle of weenies. (laughs) I'm tight but ever-growing. Tight but (laughs) ever-growing. I'm really surprised that he has not been featured here before because he's really the perfect example of a weenie. So Jared Kushner is 36. He has worked previously as a real estate developer, owned The Observer, which is a newspaper. All things that really helped him prepare clearly for his role as senior advisor to Donald Trump, to the president of the United States. As of this past week, he is now in charge of everything, um, <laughs> like actually everything. So he's been tapped as the head of the White House Office of American Innovation, which is a very vague <laughs> title for an office to begin with. And he is, according to the Washington Post, he's going to be in charge of giving advice to Donald Trump regarding relations with China, Mexico, Canada, the Middle East, uh, helping fight ISIS, and then domestically reform within the VA office and fighting opioid addiction. So, like, actually everything. Um, <laughs> That's all the things that I can, can think of. He can do. He can do whatever he wants domestically and uh, internationally when it comes to advising Donald Trump in his 
new job. And again, he's 36 and his only qualification for this job is that he's Donald Trump's son-in-law, which is a terrifying qualification. I know. Think of, yeah, think of marrying into that. I know white men have been like marrying into jobs like this forever, but it just feels very high stakes to me. feels very in my face. Our next weenie is actually Jared Kushner's wife, Donald Trump's daughter, and the secret I, I don't know what she is. I was going to say secret president, but it doesn't actually seem like she is at all. Cause she's, it seems what, more like Jared Kushner's secret president. Jared Kushner's secret president, but Ivanka is clearly controlling Jared. Okay, here's what happened. Ivanka gave her first interview to CBS This Morning with Gail King. And in the interview, she said, If being complicit is wanting to... is wanting to be a force for good and to make a positive impact, then I'm complicit. I don't know that the critics who may say that of me, if they found themselves in this very unique and unprecedented situation that I am now in, would do any differently than I'm doing. So I hope to make a positive impact. I don't know what it means to be um, complicit. Ugh, she is such a drip. I'm sorry, Praji, you can't say something or don't say something. I don't know what position you're in, but it makes me—yeah, yes, Ivanka, being complicit is wanting to be a force for good. Like, that. that's definitely what the question is. <laughs> I'm, de- I'm just going to marvel at the linguistics there. It's like saying, well, if by being an asshole you mean not being an asshole, then yes, yeah. <laughs> I am an asshole. Yeah, it's like, okay. I mean, it was a treat to hear Ivanka say complicit, but it was also so weenie-ish the way she evaded the question with literally nothing. Also in the interview, she said that people are accusing that she's standing silently by while Donald Trump supports sexual harassers, takes away federal protections for women in the workplace— alienates trans people, takes away their rights, blah, 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 and she's not saying anything. And she said, don't conflate lack of public denouncement with silence. Girl, what is silence then? She's like, no, I spoke secretly about things I care about in meetings that nobody knows about. Please the thing trust is, me. You can't have it both ways. You can't be a public official, which she now is, assistant to the president, and also, and even before that, she was a surrogate on the campaign and helping with policy. So you can't say that you have a position in politics and then say what what you say or do or don't say shouldn't matter. Yeah. So. Just don't be in the White House then. <laughs> right. Do whatever you want, girl. It's like you are, yes, you are a figurehead. You, yeah. <laughs> you have that responsibility at all times, whether you're skiing in Aspen or not. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Our next weenie of the week is the House Freedom Caucus. And this is a group of House Republicans who are hyper-conservative, ultra-conservative. They started from the Tea Party movement. And they have been angling for a super, super, super slimmed-down version of the Affordable Care Act. And they've been meeting behind the scenes with Trump officials to come up with a plan that's somehow even worse than the original plan that Republicans proposed and then failed to vote on a few weeks ago. So this new bill would take away essential health benefits from the Affordable Care Act, and it would basically say that states that wanted to could now no longer require companies 
insurance companies to cover essential health benefits like emergency visits and maternity care and prescription drugs. And then it also allows companies to basically price discriminate again against sick people. So it takes out the protections that Obamacare put in place for pre-existing conditions. So this plan is just completely terrible. And there's no, it's still in the draft phase, so hopefully it won't pass. I mean, it's going to be hard for them to get consensus amongst the moderate Republicans to sign off on this. But the idea that this is what makes such a large number of Republicans happy is very upsetting. Instead of Weenie Cage Match this week, we're going to do a different segment. Prachi, are you ready? I'm so ready. Here's what it is. So if you've listened to this podcast more than once, hopefully you've listened to it 10 times because there have been 10 podcasts to listen to. This is our 11th one. You have noted that Paul Ryan has been in it a lot. So instead of giving away a weenie spot, sometimes we'll just do what hole is Paul Ryan hiding in? That's the name of our new segment. Okay, Prachi, guess. What hole is Paul Ryan hiding in? Um, what holes? <laughs> don't know Just if I should any be literal. <laughs> no, don't be. Uh, well, the answer is not like a literal hole. So right. Just okay. a hint. Um, well, I have no idea, uh-huh. but I do know that he's not hiding behind Trump care because he was not publicly discussing it at all. That's true. But he is hiding behind a light blue puzzle piece pin. For autism awareness, Paran put on a pin and then he tweeted, hashtag light it up blue for hashtag autism awareness, which is a wonderful, wonderfully ironic gesture since he just supported Trump Care slash Ryan Care, which was cruelly unkind to people with autism. And that's where he's hiding. Well, Paul Ryan, we found you. Okay, so now our dick of the week is the internet privacy repeal, which has now passed through the House and the Senate and been signed by Donald Trump. So let's talk about what it means. So on Wednesday, Donald Trump signed a measure introduced by the Senate. It passed the Senate and then it passed the House on Tuesday, which will repeal regulations that require internet service providers to obtain customers' consent before selling web browsing and app usage data to advertisers and third parties. This was a regulation that the Obama administration introduced at the end of the administration, but it hadn't totally gone into effect yet, and the Senate was able to reverse it before it could through something called the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to reverse regulations that it disagrees with and also prevent whatever agency issued the regulation from ever issuing it again. Like ever? I mean, as far as I could tell, there was no like, this is how you do it again. It's just like, Congress disagrees, don't do this. Oh, great. And the agency in this case is the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. So 
The Senate measure was introduced two weeks ago by Republican Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona and 23 Republican co-sponsors. At the time, Flake said that he was just trying to, quote, protect consumers from overreaching internet regulation. Again, Republicans hate regulation, except for when it's about guns or, like, Cialis. Um, Or abortion. Or abortion. I forgot about abortion. (laughs) Um, But I think we can all guess what the major factor was in this. Not regulation. Prachi, it's money. Of course it is. So The Verge, the website The Verge, has a list of senators and the representatives who voted for the bill. And all but one senator, the wonderfully named Senator Luther Strange, who was just elected to replace Jeff Sessions in Alabama, has been given money, most often tens of thousands of dollars from the telecom industry in the most recent election cycle. Surprise. I'm not. Okay, so according to Ars Technica, Several Democratic senators spoke very forcefully against the measure. Senator Ed Markey, the Democrat from Massachusetts, said that the measure would, quote, allow Comcast, Verizon, Charter, AT&T, and other broadband providers to take control away from consumers and relentlessly collect and sell their sensitive information without the consent of that family. Markey also emphasized that using this information, which includes, like, health information, financial information, where you shop— what school website you're visiting. You basically have, like, um, a map of who you are and what you do. You definitely could draw a map based on my internet browsing history, albeit a very sad one. <laughs> um, Senator Bill Nelson, a Democrat from Florida, also said, quote, your home broadband provider can know when you wake up each day, either by knowing the time each morning that you log on to the internet to check the weather and news of the morning or through a connected device in your home. And that provider may know immediately if you're not feeling well, assuming you decide to peruse the internet like most of us do to get a quick check on your symptoms. In fact, your broadband provider may know more about your health and your reaction to illness than you are willing to share with your doctor. I think it's also worth pointing out, even though those are Democrats speaking against this and Republicans who voted for it, that when you look at the country's population, like, this did not have support from Repub- – like, nobody liked this bill. Like, like this is not I mean, this isn't anybody. a bill for people. This is a <laughs> right. bill for telecom. For telecom. For advertisers right. to be able to purchase stuff. This is not something that a person would ever ask for. So nothing has technically changed, as I said, since the FCC regulations weren't supposed to take effect until the end of this year. So we're basically in the same place as we were before – But this measure does make sure that there is nothing between internet service providers, ISPs, and using your data to make money. And there are no regulations to make sure that your data isn't sold on its own rather than bundled up to ensure anonymity. Like usually your data comes in a set of hundreds of thousands of other people's data. This is – you could just sell Prachi's data or Joanna's data. So specifically, ISPs still can't see what you do on an encrypted site, which – begins with HTTPS. So on an encrypted site, they'd only be able to see that you visited that general website. But Ars Technica has a very good article on this, and I learned so much from them. They interviewed a broadband privacy attorney named Dallas Harris who said that even this encrypted thing doesn't matter because ISPs can still figure out what bank you use, your political leanings, your sexual orientation, when you're home, when you're not home, how old you are. They don't need that data. They can they know enough about you. With this deregulated 
ISP situation, advertisers can now create just very personalized profiles and sell them to anybody who pays the most. And companies will now own these massive data banks of information about Americans. On Wednesday, Ajit Pai, the FCC chairman, and Maureen Olhausen, the acting FTC chairman, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post called, No, Republicans Didn't Just Strip Away Your Internet Privacy Rights. And it argued that the prior arrangements had held content providers and ISPs to different standards. So they're like, guys, relax. This is just like a market thing. And there's one quote that I just wanted to point out. The FCC's regulations weren't about protecting consumers' privacy. They were about government picking winners and losers in the marketplace. If two online companies have access to the same data about your internet usage, why should the federal government give one company greater leeway to use it than the other? And before we go on, we can, we'll can ask our guests more about this too, but there people are talking about the ways to protect your information, even without these regulations. And people are talking about VPNs, virtual private networks, or like Tor networks. My understanding from reading some articles written by smart tech people (laughs) is that these are very complicated to set up and not regulated at all. So it's hard to tell what even a secure VPN is unless you've really, really done your research. So don't just Basically, my advice is don't just buy a VPN because you have to buy them. Don't just buy that and be like, I'm safe now. Yeah, do your homework. Do your homework. Before you buy it. The repeal of internet privacy should concern pretty much anybody who uses the internet. But like everything else in this country, it does have a harsher impact on low-income communities and people of color. Um, and the reason is this. So so like Joanna was saying, companies acquire your data generally in big packets. So it's, it's called big data, and that's basically large data sets from a mix of sources. Some, are, some is like print, traditional sources, and then internet sources like emails and internet searches and click streams, and then all of that data is analyzed for insights and information. Um, The the big problem, though, is that we don't really know how companies analyze this information. We don't know what they do with that data or how they use it. So we just see the output. Um, The data goes into something called a black box, and then it's pumped out to make recommendations or to personalize things on a website or show you a targeted ad. But we don't know how that algorithm works generally. In 2014, the White House released a report on big data that warned that information being collected is just so vast and online activity is now being combined with real-world data in new ways. And one of the things they warned against is that information could now be used to later be used to figure out an individual's eligibility for a job, housing, credit, education, and more. Um, And that's in addition to just generic marketing. So that's a fear of companies having access to so much data. And then the report also warned that there's a potential for discrimination because, again, we don't know how these algorithms work. So, And and multiple studies looking at big data have found racial bias in its applications. Former Attorney General Eric Holder has definitely expressed concerns about data exacerbating discrimination. 
And when the House repealed the internet privacy rule, Rashad Robinson, the executive director of racial justice group Color of Change, released a statement that said, quote, the data that big corporations collect from black broadband users leads to predatory marketing, which starts at a young age and lasts throughout our lives. Without the crucial FCC regulations implemented last year, Black and marginalized communities will continue to experience online price gouging, data discrimination, and digital redlining. So I want to give a couple of examples of what he's talking about and how applications of data can become discriminatory. So in 2013, Harvard professor Latanya Sweeney, director of the Data Privacy Lab, looked at 120,000 internet searches specifically looking at Google AdWord buys from companies that provide criminal background checks. And she found that if you have a black name, you're more likely to see an ad about for an arrest record than if you are searching for a white name, regardless of whether you actually that person actually has an arrest record. And the real world impact of this is that anyone searching your name, say like you're applying for a job or a rental application or in the running for an award, If the committee or your future employer Googles you and sees ads that imply you have a criminal record and then he doesn't see that ad for people who are competing for the same position, that could affect your ability to get the job. And another example, in 2014, Harvard Business School researchers looked at Airbnb listings in New York City um, in 2012, and they found that, on average, Black hosts made 12% less than non-Black hosts for apartments that had similar ratings, photos, and location. So again, we don't know how companies use and process the heaps of data that they get, but we do know that the data is imperfect and it can reflect and actually therefore perpetuate racial bias that already exists in everyday life. So here's like a really startling example of this. In May of last year, ProPublica released a report showing how big data is perpetuating racial bias in the criminal justice system. The Department of Justice's National Institute of Corrections has advocated for the use of what's called post-conviction risk assessment software, which assesses the risk of recidivism of somebody. So this software looks at a bunch of information about the individual um, and then churns out a number. And that number is a rating that suggests what, how risky, how likely they are to commit a future offense and what kind of offense that would be. This is a system then that is used to make decisions about sentencing, about bond amounts, even releases in courtrooms across the country. So to see how the algorithm's predictions stacked up against reality, ProPublica looked at 7,000 people arrested in one Florida county between 2013 and 2014, and then looked at their records for the next two years. And they found that basically the algorithm was not at all accurate. Only 20% of the people that it predicted would commit a violent crime did so. And a little more than half, so 61% of people actually went back and committed the misdemeanors that the algorithm predicted. So basically it sucks at predicting actual crimes um, or likelihood of crimes. But then they also found a serious racial bias where they found that the program was about twice as likely to call a black defendant a future criminal than a white one. And it was it would also mislabel white defendants as low risk more often than black defendants. And then here's one more example I want to highlight of how 
our data is being used and, and the applications of how it affects people of color specifically. So in October, the ACLU of California called out Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for supporting Black Lives Matter like verbally um, through their missions, but then continuing to work with this company called Geofedia. And Geofedia is a company that gathers social media information and organizes it by geographic location. And the ACLU found that police in Oakland and Baltimore were using Geofedia's data to monitor protests and activist activities. You know, to their credit, Instagram and Facebook cut off Geofedia's access to certain types of data in response to this report, and Twitter suspended its relationship, which is a good step, but it's ultimately not enough. And now the ACLU is calling for social media companies to have more transparent policies that prevent developers from using data for surveillance. So basically, the real concern is that we don't know what companies do with all this data. And we do know that this law or the repeal of internet privacy is going to help enable them to do even more with it than they currently do. And we also know that the applications of that data are growing beyond just simple marketing and targeted ads, and that they do affect people of color and marginalized communities in different ways than the rest of the population. So this is why we need more transparency and more regulations around its usage and application. Uh, But with this administration, I highly doubt we will ever see that. Now joining us is Stephen Renderos, Organizing Director at the Center for Media Justice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about the new ISP privacy policy that Donald Trump just signed. Will our day-to-day experience change? What is our advertisers already collecting this kind of data? What practically will change? The thing that changes is the ability for your internet service provider, which gathers a, uh, a massive amount of data or has access to a massive amount of data, gives them the ability to sell this data without your consent. And so to give you a sense of what some of those data points might be, this includes things like your website search history. This, in- this could include things like your health information and could include your financial information, your social security number, your app usage on your cell phone, So there's an incredible amount of data that they have access to, and they can now actually just turn this data over to data brokers to use it for the purposes of advertising um, and for a variety of other reasons. So, I mean, it's it's a new market that I think internet service providers are trying to develop for themselves. It's another way for them to generate revenue, and it's, uh, it's a treasure trove of information that they have access to on every single one of their users. There's a great potential for harm that may only just end up reinforcing some of, you know, discriminatory and predatory practices that we've seen offline. Can you go into more detail about what this sort of internet data is most commonly used for and how that might change with this new repeal? What we've seen is advertisers are thirsty to gather more and more data points so that they can do more targeted advertising. So that's one thing. Other places where we've seen data being aggregated is, you know, as we shift over to using 
artificial intelligence or predictive algorithms, those are places in which, you know, incorporating more data into those algorithms uh, is, is a thing that's being, um, you know, it's being moved towards. So you see this happening right now in, in our criminal justice system uh, with pretrial risk assessments, you know, algorithms that use various different data points to determine whether or not someone should be let go from, from prison, uh, you know, to await their trial. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, currently a lot of the data points that are being baked into those algorithms are already baked in with so much bias. Um, things like the zip code that you live in, uh, the arrest records in the community that you live in. Um, there's a potential for, um, as, you know, people have more access to your information, that instead of actually addressing racial discrimination or making things uh, more affordable for you, in fact, it could just end up reinforcing some of the very things that we experience on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we saw this uh, a few years ago with, you know, Walmart and the way that they did their advertising. They, you know, would push out advertising in low-income neighborhoods that would give you special offers on junk food and wouldn't necessarily extend that kind of advertising in more affluent neighborhoods where, you know, they would market vegetables and fresh food and these sorts of things. Those are some examples, I think, of how we might see some of this play out in the future. So I I read in one article that it was possible that there are no regulations under this new law that prohibits companies from selling an individual's data rather than it being lumped into a group to anonymize it. Is that true at all? Is is that something that would ever happen? Yeah, I mean, the rules that the Federal Communications Commission had passed last year, one of the things that it required was that um, if you are going to gather sensitive data, things like financial information, health information, social security numbers, information about your children, um, that one that you needed to gather consent from the user in order to, 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 you know, to collect that data. Secondly, you needed to de-identify the data so that it couldn't actually be linked back to that individual. Um, by repealing the FCC's broadband privacy rules, uh, Congress and in effect the president have stripped that requirement from these companies. So uh, there's nothing stopping uh, a big internet service provider from selling that data of an individual to advertisers, to even law enforcement agencies, to whoever, you know, whoever the highest bidder is, I suppose. On the individual level, there are some things that individuals can do to kind of mitigate or minimize some of the risk. It's it's not a replacement for comprehensive rules that, you know, really prevent your internet service provider from doing certain things. But there are things on a personal level that you can be doing, like ensuring that you're using, uh, you know, secure websites. So making sure that your website URL has that S next to HTTP so that you know that you're accessing an encrypted website. Um, you can use encrypted text messaging apps like Signal, preferably Signal, over WhatsApp. Um, but that also requires or really hinges on um, the person that you're communicating with also using that application. Um, there are things you can do with your app settings to ensure that you're not giving up more information than you really need to. Like, does that video game that you use uh, on your cell phone, like Pokemon Go, do they need to have access to your location all the time? You know, and there are things that you can do with your browsing experience that are a little more complicated, like using web browsers like Tor uh, and using virtual private networks to ensure that, you know, your online experience is fairly kind of encrypted and secure. 
But, you know, those I think are, are some potential solutions, but again, not a good replacement for comprehensive rules that just, you know, guarantee certain rights uh, to internet users and guarantee and prevent predatory behavior um, from internet service providers. So if I'm looking to get a VPN or use Tor, what would you recommend people buying or using? Because from my understanding, there's there's a lot of products out there, some, but we don't really know, like they're not really regulated. I mean, I think it's, it's important to know who is developing a lot of these tools. Um, you know, one organization that does a ton of work on just kind of documenting, you know, what tools are out there is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, I think they especially look at um, how secure these platforms are over the course of time. They're consistently updating um, their their toolkits to ensure that people are using, uh, you know, uh, technologies that are really designed um, with safety and security of the users in mind. You know, so there, that I think would be one specific resource that I would point folks at. We all know that advertisers can get a lot of information about us and kind of draw a map of what our lives look like. What does that actually mean for us? Like, is it bad if a company knows everything about me? What is What could happen? Algorithms that uh, are supposed to make determinations about us oftentimes make assumptions that may or may not be correct. So, for example, um, some of the data points that uh, you know, are collected around lending, for example, are things like, uh, do you pay for your gas at the pump or do you pay for your gas uh, inside? Uh, you know, do you go inside and actually pay a cashier? And the, the assumption that the data would have you believe is that people who go inside to pay at a cashier are more likely to be smokers. And if you're more likely to be smokers, you might be more likely to be a health risk. And if you're more likely to be a health risk, then perhaps we shouldn't give you this loan because maybe you might not be around long enough to to pay that back. So, you know, th- this is the place where I think like making those kinds of assumptions can be very dangerous. Uh, we saw this a few years ago uh, with Target. I mean, Target, the, the corporation, you know, collects all of the shopping data of their users. So if you use a credit card, uh, every time you swipe your credit card at a Target, you know, they collect, you know, various data points about what you're buying, when you buy it, those sorts of things. There was a story a few years ago where they uh, sent a mailer uh, to someone's home, you know, advertising all these like, you know, baby products, diapers, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, and the and it was addressed to um, a teenager in the home. And it turns out that that teenager had purchased, you know, a pregnancy test and Target then inferred by that information that she might be pregnant. So they sent a mailer to her home. Her father was you know, pretty flabbergasted by the fact that Target would be sending her advertisements that targeted, you know, baby products to her. Um, and she hadn't actually at that point told her father that she was pregnant. There are a lot of assumptions that I think can be made based on the things that that we do online, um, the websites that we visit, you know, the things that we purchase online, the apps that we use and for how, how long we use them. Uh, and oftentimes the assumptions that that data brokers and advertisers make about what that means uh, can can sometimes be incorrect and sometimes have, you know, significant consequences. So to be clear, the data that ISPs are now selling, that once it leaves, like once it, they can sell it, it can go pretty much anywhere and be used for anything, right? Like, are there any regulations around how this can be used and what companies can use it? Right. I mean, that's definitely the case. Uh, unfortunately, you know, for some of the websites that we visit, 
those websites are required by the Federal Trade Commission to, you know, handle that data in in certain secure ways. Uh, so when, when you go to Facebook, when you go to Google, there are some privacy protections there. But your internet service provider is very kind of, you know, they have a more bird's eye view of your whole online experience. So once they collect it, and without these broadband privacy rules in place now, they can sell it to whoever wants it. Um, and those data brokers, those data miners can then resell it to whoever they want to. You know, the fact is, is this data can be can end up in places that we never expected them to end up in, um, whether that's a police database um, that's looked that's using predictive policing to identify places where crime might happen, um, or whether that's a, you know, again, like a bank lender who is determining whether or not to give you a loan. That's the unfortunate kind of wild, wild west world that we're living in in terms of our online privacy. You know, what Congress did was extremely harmful and uh, affects everyone in the United States who uses the internet. Uh, so, you know, action, taking action like this, using a very powerful tool like the Congressional Review Act was just a petty act, you know, from a petty Congress. So there have been online petitions going around about buying ISP information on politicians. Is that something that's possible? Or how likely is it that people could get their hands on internet data linked to politicians? Yeah, no, it's not It's not super likely that as an individual, you could pay money to, you know, gather the search history for an individual, uh, you know, someone that you're looking for. That said, I mean, I think the the purpose behind the fundraiser is just to, again, kind of reiterate the point, which is that our data is not in the hands of our control. Um, you know, we as the users who generate this data have zero control over that data. Um, and the purpose of the broadband privacy rules were to extend some control um, over, you know, our online privacy. Uh, you know, and I think one of the, you know, after effects of what Congress did is it's now forcing states to act. Uh, you're seeing legislation being introduced in Minnesota, in Illinois, other states that are considering doing the same um, to extend some privacy protections to their users uh, and requiring internet service providers that, you know, do business in those states uh, to extend protections to their users. The, the drawback to that approach is that from state to state, that can look very different. It's not as comprehensive as what the FCC did uh, at the national level um, and doesn't, um, you know, cover everyone or protect everyone. Clearly, the Republican-controlled Congress and the Trump administration don't care so much about individuals' internet privacy and privilege the telecom industry and big business over privacy rights. Do you have any sense what changes might be next? Is this going to be a trend we're going to start to see? Uh, you know, repealing broadband privacy was kind of the first domino to fall in a much larger battle over the future of the Internet. Uh, to understand, you know, why the FCC passed these rules uh, late last year, you know, we have to go back to 2015 when uh, the Federal Communications Commission passed rules uh, for the open Internet, or as folks might know it, net neutrality. They decided then that the internet should be regulated more like a utility uh, because of the function that it plays in our everyday lives, uh, whether that's accessing, you know, our educational information or applying for jobs. Um, and, you know, rightfully so, they regulated it like a utility, much like your telephone line. And that was the authority that they used to implement these uh, rules of broadband privacy. They also used that authority to expand a, a low-income program called Lifeline, which now will hopefully allow uh, low-income families to 
uh, you know, get a subsidized uh, cost uh, for their, you know, internet use at home. But ultimately, I think the big thing that this Congress, uh, this administration, and the current version of the FCC, headed by a former Verizon lobbyist, uh, what they're looking for and what they're looking to do is overturn those rules of net neutrality. Um, that's really the big gamut to fall. Um, right now, those rules are the only thing standing in the way from having your internet experience um, look like what it is today um, to a future in which it might look something more like cable TV where you pay for certain websites. Steven, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. our favorite segment of the show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we tell you how we're handling the dicks. It's been a stressful couple weeks. I don't even really remember what's happened. Prachi, are you having a good time handling the dicks or are the dicks handling you? Yeah, I think I've been, I feel like I've been a little bit owned by the dicks. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think I went on a rant a few weeks ago on a previous episode about how I can't I get addicted to TV shows too easily, so I just don't watch long series. While I fell into the trap, I got addicted to Parenthood. I would never watch such a show, but I'm so happy for you. It's, no, that's that's why it's so it's like an embarrass it's embarrassing. <laughs> no, really, people love it. It's fine. It's just like. <laughs> I just, I can't handle anything too dramatic or intense. But I thought that was so dramatic and well, intense. <laughs> I thought that that was why well, I would never watch but it. I guess I mean like dark. I can't watch anything dark right now. Like I love the show Black Mirror, but yeah. I haven't been able to watch season two since the election because it's just too real. Okay. What I, re- I understand what you're saying, but what I remember of Parenthood, which I never watched, all the ads were like, this week on a very special parenthood and like somebody has a disease and everybody's crying and it's like a big drama and it seems upsetting. <laughs> is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, that is I accurate. associate it as the this is us of like whenever it was on. Oh, yeah. It's I mean, I've never seen this is us. Me neither. It's parenthood was not a show that appealed to me at all. I watched it after I had gone through a couple of other shows that also didn't appeal to me, and I finally gave up. And then I was like, oh, this is seven seasons. It'll keep me occupied for a while because I really want to zone out. So I just have it on when I'm doing the dishes and also when I'm not doing the dishes. (laughs) And I just sit down and turn my brain off. I'm very happy for you. Yeah, you know this is very uncharacteristic of me, so. No, it's good. For me, my media has changed since the last podcast because this weekend I finished The Sopranos. I watched the season finale. So now I'm done with it. And Congratulations. Thank you so much. I've been watching it for Look six months. Look at this months. timing. You just finished. And you're just and beginning. And I'm just beginning. It's just, ugh, it was so good. The, the difference is you're watching a very good show and I'm not. It's, <laughs> it's true. Although it is hard for me to watch what is, like, the best TV show, and then to have to try to watch other TV. Like, now I have to start – I don't have to. I would like to start a new series. Well, I'm I'm watching The Leftovers. I'm already doing something else. But it's just not not nearly as good as The Sopranos, even though it is very good. Justin Theroux, I think, is how I'm handling the dicks. And also by finishing The Sopranos and feeling fulfilled by good – 
television. By I a should great try television that. I should try to seek out some great television. I've been avoiding great television because it makes me have to think about things. I know. The Sopranos <laughs> really made me very stressed out every single time. I was, like, anxious every night that I watched it. <laughs> but I'm not there yet. Ultimately, my heart is fuller yet. for it. My heart and my brain and my body are fuller for it. Good. I'm proud of you. This week, we heard from one of you guys about how you're handling the dicks. Thank you so much for listening and for telling us. Paula Atwood sent us this amazing voice note from North Carolina. My friend and I started a campaign in response to a god-awful billboard that went up in Greensboro about a month ago that said, real men provide, real women appreciate it. And it went up anonymously. That no one has come forward to claim it. It's gotten a lot of pushback. And my friend and I wanted to do something about it. And instead of just like sitting going like, man, that sucks. Uh, so we put together a GoFundMe campaign and um, raised money to put up our own billboard. And earlier this week on Tuesday, our billboards went up in two different places in Raleigh that say gender equality benefits everyone. And we've gotten just tons of support. Um, so thank you for your podcast. And I will keep listening. Thank you. That is way more inspired than anything I have done <laughs> in the past four months to our handle ha- the dicks. So kudos our, to Paula. Our how to handle the dicks are so stupid. <laughs> They're and really like, dumb. We just talked about TV. <laughs> yeah. Paula's out there putting up billboards that make people think. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for submitting that. And everyone else who's listening, if you have a way that you've been handling the dicks, send us a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at us using the hashtag bigtimedicks. Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks and thank you so much to our guest, Stephen Randeros. Please rate and review us on iTunes so that other people can find the podcast. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you download your podcasts. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mondana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and this episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. 